Recorded live in Manhattan's East Village at St. Mark's Church in the Bowery, this is The Poetry Project. So, uh, Rosa Alcala's work, and I think particularly her book, The Lost of Unsentimental Waters from 2012, or 2012, asks us to consider the distance of language as a disunity of its capacity for transmission. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'd like to look at her poem, Safe Distance, for that reason. Okay, so this, is, this will explain. Um, so pardon me for reading this through. I'm going to read the poem, if you don't mind. Um, and, but I think it demonstrates um, some of the keys, right, to, to understanding her work. So, what we know about ourselves is split into distances. The body is part history. Sex gives news. When all museums have been looted, will an empire of pawned goods conquer? No love is safe from this lack of imagination. We send ourselves off to work out patterns of grammar or war, and translation as the final instance of mishearing sends the sensitive word away to seek kindness in strangers. This poem acts as if the world exists, so I ignore it, and it becomes a terror to converse with. So what I think of most clearly here is the question of the metrics by which we understand the ongoing selfhood of language, which is to say that the knowledge of these measurements is assembled out of a subject which is itself a consideration of the exteriorized potentiality of language as existent, as with the converse of the material uh, experience of dialogue that is a troubling or terrorizing partner in the slippery ownership of conquest and authorship. What gets sent off or away or cast out or exiled then is the idea of of rather than the concrete station of the spatialized other where language can be sent, a world that exists for the poem, for the patterns of grammar or war. Yet even these are sent, are discarded, are distances. Even these send out or are loosed into a timelessness of ignorance, of the place where the self-language, and that is the self-identical, is not an amalgamation of time or experience, but that of distances. What is, it, what is at stake, then, is what part of our bodies are history, what inscription teaches the body its history, and what we cannot ignore as the reciprocal poetics after we are of a distance of ourselves, the shadow that remains behind the language of our loss. Please welcome Rosa Alcala to the Poetry Project. I was so enraptured by your introduction that I forgot that I had to read. I was like, that person's great. Who is that? Um, Hi, it's so nice to be back in the Poetry Project. I mean, when I was a baby poet, this was the place to come, you know, to kind of, you know, coming from New Jersey, taking the bus here, trying to find my tribe. Um, And a lot of my tribe is here tonight, which is nice. Uh, Jennifer, thank you for that very powerful reading and for your um, sort of use of the audience in that really brilliant way. Thank you. And uh, Judah, thank you for inviting me. It was very nice. I was very happy to come. Um, And Nicole Wallace, I don't know if she's here, but she sort of, she dealt with the book, so please, when you see her, tell her thanks for me. Um, One of the reasons that I'm here, besides to do this reading, which I'm um, excited to do, is to work with Cecilia Vicuña. So um, Cecilia has, uh, she's here in the front. Um, many of you know her, and she has a, a selected works coming out with Kelsey Street in the fall, and I'm working on part of that. 
So I thought to open the reading, I would read one of um, my translations of a poem that's in Saborami, which is poems that were uh, written in the 60s and 70s that were censored in Chile and uh, were just recently um, published for the first time as a book in Chile. Um, and this is Puritan poem. I love my sex between your sex and my own. I don't know which to choose. It's just that yours is so much fun and mine so pretty. But what must be emphasized is how yours fits inside of mine when it is so big and brilliant in color. The sexes are self-perfumed. To die with a hand on one's sex not hand in hand, although that can be accomplished by the other hand. Uh, I'm going to read from a manuscript uh, recently completed called um, Mother Tongue or My Other Tongue, um, however you want to read it. At least that's how I sort of see it on the future cover. And it starts with an epigraph, or the book starts with an epigraph. A writer is someone who plays with his mother's body, Roland Barthes, the pleasure of the text. Um, I'm staying down in, in Battery Park City in the financial district, and I keep thinking you're raising your hand, Justin. I just want to take a question. Would you like... No, no. no. Um, and I worked down there as a temp for, for many years, so it's a place that's familiar to me, and of course it's become very unfamiliar in, in many ways because of the, it's changed so much. Um, and I thought I'd start with this poem. This is a poem I wrote the first few days of Occupy Wall Street, which, I, of course, I didn't participate in because I live in El Paso, um, even though there was an, an Occupy of sorts there. Um, but it was also at the same time my mother was getting these transfusions, these blood transfusions, um, because of severe anemia. So these are the two things that are happening in the poem. Transfusions beginning the 11th day of Occupy Wall Street. The state feeds on their anemia, EMC Iran, one. And my mother, close to spending her last cent on transfusions, which Edna St. Vincent Millay likened to poetry translation, all the blood sacks screened for bad habits, classed by type and not by temperament, loosen an immigrant's militants a name, and a place of origin. My mother says, this is a young person's blood. I can feel it rolling down my thighs. What if in the most terrible collision, blood type between mother and daughter, between original and copy, proves incompatible? We prick each finger, smear two glass slides, and place them on a text called the future. A rejection of another's blood, a faulty translation, won't necessarily kill you, but your own blood reintroduced into your body, quite literally, is not without its dangers. Two, a young woman with belly bare, another with breasts exposed to autumn air, demands written on their bodies, read by a rush of cameramen. In the performance that is protest, that is being pretty, prettiness is currency, is capital gain. 
when the protest or parade turn ugly, both the pretty and the plain lose their shirts, chased or pulled into the crowd's dark center, its leagues of fingers. They are lost or expelled, a lesson taught. Three, although there's blood in this poem, that's not the plot. The plot is money. Money's the plot. Four, I was a Wall Street temp, rose into buildings now gone or netted over. I said hello as a corporation, lost calls, passwords, wore the wrong thing. I dreamed of marrying myself onto the main island. Lovers were easy as bike rides through the park, a deck of outcomes like assignments or cubicles. One begins to believe vigor, a resume. Some nights, I locked myself out and climbed the escape. It was a place to lay my head or await a proper diagnosis. Confused by my choices, I was told the slit in the skirt would distract the traitors, particularly the Venezuelan, a diplomat's son. Finish faxing and pack up your pumps. We were a colony of temps, each sent to work a parcel of land as punishment for our cheap taste. Five, a shirt mooned with dye and sweat enters the kitchen. This picture serves as entrance into a mind, the fake brick backsplash, the curvy mahogany cornice over the sink, my father's face at the threshold of air conditioning handing his wife a check. They say dirty for gross pay and clean for net. My parents' passbook savings stamped weekly by the neighborhood by the neighborhood girl who professed not to know Spanish. I know who you are, my mother once told her through the glass partition. Now all the money's gone. We lose our name in its absence. Money as autobiography, money as fairy tale mirror. Six. The word Overtime astounds me now, so far from the old measurements. Also, cash, a wonder, a sonnet. Seven, I dream I've drugged my way out of place. I've slept my place out of me. I announce to my students that this is the only way to where we are from. I try to reconstruct the bodies each, but I confuse them. I try to meet that thought. I try to hear what it is. It's a chanting. I rally the mob against my current body. Someone in a Guy Fawkes mask carries a sign denouncing my many exuberances. Now I'm on to something. A reporter flips open his notebook and skips over me. No photograph to accompany my side. No record of the story. Eight. I worked for coffee, sugar, and cocoa, and learned the art of the spit, levels of acidity, ordering things from the home shopping network, and the closest post office to which they should return. A lady boss kept me waiting in the women's section at Bloomingdale's, and after I was educated, did time at Planned Parenthood with posters of runaways and a baby in a pinafore. I was then reading Creeley. That and the neurologist, you could say I was out of pocket in the sense the vibrations ran through my legs and through my privacies. One who sleeps in commercial districts 
is regularly made public and awakened for repair. There was also the weird guy down the hall who dragged his trash down the stairs and later held a hooker against her will. Her name was Rosa. True story. Nine. On the phone, my mother confuses words. She hears worry inside, inside of story, a swift kick thundering from sweet kiss. Driving back from Canada years earlier, she wished her kids could sing for her knee surgery. The notes I carried, idle in traffic just that side of the border, were rheumatoid. But what do I know about Melody Ma? I'm an American. I need images. Ten. In the great tradition of courtly love, a modern-day sonneteer sets out to serve women engaged in the cause and with his subtle and wistful lens slows the lashes and mouth as they open suddenly for him. The bony flex of shoulder blades meets hair fanning softly near a tattoo. Every frame in jams to unfold one labile body after another. Hope exits their mouths as warm air. And just to make clear the powers they denounce are inescapable, he names it hot chicks of the occupation. 11. I fold cash for the house cleaner in thirds, and she tucks it into her sweater pocket as she tells me about her car, her son, a bus trip back home. We both talk as if nothing has just happened. I thank her for all she's done. 12. The drug or dare I took was a bus daily to push out into some place, the someone I might be. The place now, the pushing of someone out of me. After they've wiped blood off the baby, I know this place is a dream called money. But money recedes into the scenery just as the scenery grows greener around me. 13. My mother's early bedtime closes the gap on wakefulness, each day shorter. Democratic awakening turns televised weather, a dim forecast from her mechanical bed. Ask her about that hurricane sweeping across the oil-rich end of Texas she imagines me in. I live in El Paso, which is not the oil-rich end of Texas, just to make it clear. So um, a, lot, a lot of these poems I, I wrote uh, as my sort of signs of my mother's um, Dementia became evident, so there's a lot of, it's sort of chronically, this book's chronically about my mother, so a lot of, <laughs> so uh, this poem is called Dear Maria, which is my mother's name, but then it became clear as I was, you know, writing these imaginary, imaginary letters to my mother that I could be writing to anyone because Maria is such a common name, so this sort of spiraled out from being about my mother to being about um, 
workers, women workers, and um, living in Juarez, there's all these multinational companies living in Juarez. I live in El Paso, which is like, is it's an extension of Juarez. Um, there are all these multinational companies uh, there, and I often think of um, the connection between these women who work in Juarez and my mother who was a factory worker too. And I have this habit when I pick up objects, I often think of who made these because my mother always made things that other people don't realize that people make. Like she, she worked in a factory where they make those plastic displays. Like when you go to Macy's where they hang the earrings, she made that stuff. For a while, she would screw on the top of Bart Simpson um, bubble, like a, um, uh, what is it called, a bubble bath. She, have to, she would have to screw on Bart Simpson's head onto the bubble bath, so she did that. See, somebody does that, right? I mean, there are hands behind all of these objects. So I was thinking about these hands, right, and sort of the, the continuum of women's hands who make all this crap we buy, right? Dear Maria... Dear Maria, dear Mary, Mariah, Marie, dear Mama, Mamacita, and Mommy, dear fourth wheel of the Trinity, dear Puerto Rican ingenue in a red sash, dear off with their heads, dear diva, dear aria missing its M, dear storage engine, dear ships in your name, dear asteroid discovered in 1877, Dear song by Cafeta Cuba, Green Day, The Jacksons, Men at Work, Blondie, Ricky Martin, Wu-Tang Clang, et al. <laughs> Dear Maria, spoken in the bird's tale of Papua New Guinea, how do you solve a problem named Maria? Dear pool type reactor, dear uranium, how you enrich us, dear Spanish biscuit, Dear sacrificial virgins of red or blonde hair, of dark brunette, of the slip apron or veil but never a hat, of the fresh complexion turned composite, of Jack the Ripper's complete works, of fluency in Welsh, Spanish, English, Quechua, French, of obscure and undocumented origins, and of las colonias, Querida María de los Ángeles, de la luz, de Jesús, del refugio, walking home or waiting for the transporte de personal without executive safe routes. Dear señorita maquiladora, dexterous, tolerant of tedium, model workers for Electrolux, General Electric, Alcoa, etc., Dear queen of the plasma TV and print cartridge, dear Miss Stainless Steel Appliance, dear crowned with cigarettes, soda cans, boot prints, dear left without nipples in the desert branded, dear Virgen de Guadalupe, hand us your sanitary napkin, blessed art thou, your blood is on everything. Um, this is when history intervenes to change the meaning of my poem. This is called At Hobby Lobby, and it was written before the Hobby Lobby controversy, as, as it is known. Um, I wrote this after going to Ho Hobby Lobby one day. It was before. I just want to point out it was before I have since boycotted them. Um, but my mother worked in a similar place called Rag Shop. I told you there's going to be chronic mommy poems. Um, 
my mom worked in a place called Rack Shop in New Jersey. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, but thinking of the women who cut the fabric uh, and thinking, thinking of her after going there. At Hobby Lobby. She tosses a bolt of fabric into the air, hill country, prairie, a horse trots there. I say three yards and her eyes say more. What you need is guidance, a hand that can zip a scissor through cloth. You need a picture of what you've lost to double the width against the window for the gathering. Consider where you sit in the morning. Transparency's appealing, except it blinds us before days begun. How I long to captain that table, to repeat in a beautiful accent a customer's request. My mother cut threads from buttons with her teeth, inquiring with a finger in the band if it cut into the waist, or kneeled against her client and pulled a hem down to a calf to cool a husband's collar. I can see this in my sleep among notions. My bed was inches from the sewing machine, a dress on the chair weeping its luminescent phrase. Sleep was the sound of insinuation, a zigzag to keep holes receptive, or awakened by a backstitch bawling under the foot. A needle cracking, blood on a white suit. When my baby's asleep, I write to no one and cannot expect a response. The fits pour always. No one wears it out the door. But fashions continue to fly out of magazines like girls out of windows. Sure, they are my sisters. They are machines, my own. The office from which I wave to them in their descent has uneven curtains made with my own pink and fragile hands. Heritage speaker. Um, <clears throat> so I was, um, I was talking to, to Cecilia about this the other day, how there's you know, having a daughter now who's bilingual but prefers English. Um, and she's always asking me how, how I say how something is said in Spanish. And I realize that once you have a child, there's just like a shitload of things I don't know how to say in Spanish, like basic mundane things. Like the most basic things you can think of, I think, how do you say that in Spanish? I don't know. So it's, 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 it's interesting. So this is a little bit about this called heritage speaker. What good is it to erect of absence a word like radiator when we've vents that expel heat as air? When I teach my daughter to speak and build a woman out of me that is not her mother, but some propriety, a treason of simple subjects, I never had use in Spanish for the word barn and then woke up and a horse was staring at me, Joe Brainerd. Softly pureed, cooled, this diction dumb in either tongue. But what is a mother's warmth if not her wit? Bernadette turns to me in the shower and says, motherhood is now fashionable among the girl poets. If so, I want my hat 
a feather in it, Maller maze, in fact. called voice activation. Starts off with an epigraph that you're all probably familiar with. Do not forget that a poem, although it is composed in the language of information, is not used in the language game of giving information. Wittgenstein. This poem, on the other hand, is activated by the sound of my voice, and luckily, I am a native speaker. Luckily, I have no accent, and you can understand perfectly what I am saying to you via this poem. I have been working on this limpid voice from which you can read each word as if rounded in my mouth as if my tongue were pushing into my teeth, my lips meeting and jaws flexing, so that even if from birth you've been taught to read faces before words and words as faces, you'll feel not at all confused with what I say on the page. But maybe you'll see my name and feel a twinge of confusion. Have no doubt, my poem is innocent and transparent. So when I say, I think I'll make myself a sandwich, the poem does not say, I drink an aisle of bad trips. Or if I say, my mother is dying, where is her phone? The poem does not say, try other it spying, spare us your foam. One way to ensure the poem and its reader no misunderstanding is to never modulate. I'm done with emotion, I'm done, especially with that certain weakness called exiting one's intention. What I mean is Spanish. What a mess that is, fishing for good old American bread and ending up with a boatload of uncles and their boxes of salt cod, a round of aunts poking for fat in your middle, So you see, Wittgenstein, even the sandwich isn't always made to my specifications. It's the poem that does what I demand. Everything else requires a series of steps. I call the nurse's station and explain to the nurse her accent thick as thieves that I'd like to speak to my mother. She calls out to my mother, it's your daughter. Really, she says this in Spanish, 
but for the sake of voice activation and this poem, you understand I can't go there. And she hands the phone to my mother, and my mother, who is not the poem, has trouble understanding me. So I write this poem, which understands me perfectly and never needs the nurse's station and never worries about unintelligible accents or speaking loudly enough or the trouble with dying, which can be understood as a loss of language. If so, the immigrant, my mother, has been misunderstood for so long. This death is from her last interpreters. Man, not modulating is tiring. Okay, this is my last poem. called Paramore. English is dirty, polyamorous. English wants me. English rides with girls and with boys. English keeps an open tab and never sleeps alone. English is a smooth talker who makes me say, please. It's a bit of role playing and I like a good tease. We have a safe word I keep forgetting. English likes pet names. English has a little secret, a past, another family. English is going to leave them for me. I've made English a set of keys. English brings me flowers stolen from a grave. English texts me, slips in as emoticons, goes to all the mixers. English has rules but accepts dates last minute. English makes booty calls. English makes me want it. When I was younger, my parents said, keep that, uh, my parents said, keep that English out of our house. If you leave with that miserable, don't come back. I said, God willing, in the language of the Inquisition. I climbed out my window but always got caught. English had a hoopty that was the joint. Now my mother goes gaga over our cute babies. Together, English and I wrote my father's obituary. How many times have I said it's over, and English just laughs and says, Come on, senorita, let's go for some Chinese. We always end up in a fancy hotel where we give fake names, and as I lay my head to hear my lover breathe, I dream of Sam Patch plunging into water, a poem English gave me that had been given to another. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Rosa. Thank you so much, JT. Thank me. 
Um, <laughs> you don't need to. <laughs> All right. Be well. Have a good night. Um, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks, or I'll see you before a couple of weeks pass. All right. Good night. The Poetry Project has promoted, fostered, and inspired the reading and writing of contemporary poetry since 1966. Consider supporting us by checking out a reading, becoming a member, or donating at poetryproject.org.